1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I am Andy Boyd. Today on the program, we're talking with the authors of the book, A Revolution in Three Acts, The Radical Vaudeville of Burt Williams, Ava Tangue, and Julian Elting. So we're speaking with David Haydew and John Carey. David, John, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you.
1: Thanks for having us on.
2: I really enjoyed this book and and this isn't entirely clear from the title, but it's, it's actually written in the form of a graphic novel. Uh, So you get a lot of great uh, images of, of these performers and of the times that they lived in. Um, Let's start there. Why did you decide you wanted to tell this story in that form of a, of a, of a graphic history?
1: Well, We actually had in mind to do a book of graphic history before, before we settled on this topic, it began with John and I, who are old college friends from NYU, wanting to do something together. John's a great artist; I admire him. I, 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 there aren't enough words to, to to convey how deeply I admire John, and uh, I wanted us to do something together. So for for a while, we you know we brainstormed ideas. What could we do that would. De- not just lend itself to imagery, but demand imagery where the where the, the we could do a better book with images than we would do with text and we settled on the world of vaudeville maybe John could pick that up there like you know why vaudeville and why imagery John probably has some thoughts about that
3: well we we uh, we had some feelings about the way vaudeville had been treated. Um, when we were growing up, it was kind of relegated to uh, the way many things pre rock and roll were treated, as kind of as a corny uh, era of our grandfather's time with uh, soft shoe routines that showed up here and there on variety shows on TV. But you knew, especially David, I think that it was a much grittier, more complex uh, form of entertainment and a place that, as our book shows, really revealed just how much was going on in America and America trying to uh, get in touch with itself. You know, it's, it's identity of all these immigrants uh, as well as African-Americans. But as far as the graphic work, we also knew that uh, there wasn't an awful lot. There wasn't film uh, of these acts and there wasn't uh, documentation of an awful lot of important things that, that went on in this period. It's also, these, these are three very colorful, colorful people. So uh, we picked good people, I think.
2: And they're all people whose act in some way was about presenting their physical body um, as, as a kind of spectacle in right. itself. Uh, in, right. in, in very different ways, but I think they all do have that in common.
1: Right, their um, physical presentations, their their presentations were elemental. So there aren't we needed to, to to show that, and also there wasn't a lot of material documentation of the core events in the book, the essential events in the book. So to do something where you know you just can't Google up the pictures, or Google up film clips, or Google up sound clips, where the only the only way to render them vividly and fully is to imagine some of it and, and give it form through combination of and text and drawing imaginative art really seemed to, to suit this. There was, there were some moments in the book where there's, there's just very little documentation of the sketchy documentation of it. So we constructed it from it's It's rigorous nonfiction. We constructed it factually from the evidence we had, but then gave it life visually through John's imagination. And that's, uh, That's why that's why this content works.
2: Mm -hmm. There's moments in the book where things like, you know, the the audience chatter during the acts is seems historically plausible, but probably not based on a specific uh, documentation of this is what this person in the audience said at this moment. And then his wife said to him and then he said to her those sorts of uh, more ephemeral moments of performance. uh, You're sort of given a little bit of wiggle room to fill in in a form like this, right?
1: Well, yeah. In some cases, the, our policy was that all the text in the uh, boxes is, you know, literally rigorously precise. But in the constructed scenes where there are word balloons, that's constructed to the best of our ability. However, there are cases when some of that is has been precisely documented. And actually, the scene you're probably thinking of, which is the scene where a journalist. Uh, took an actor an actress Italian actress to to see Williams and Walker and you know she said some very discomforting things some very really disturbing things uh, came verbatim from a newspaper account of the of the dialogue of the, this people in the audience because the also- reporter and was actor.
3: yeah. Yeah, John. What were you going to say? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought you were done. There's also a scene uh, that Andy may be thinking of, also with another uh, man and woman talking, a young couple about seeing Julian Elting. And uh, that scene was created by David. This is David's. This is David's project. He wrote it and he researched it. He did all the blueprints for the uh, for all the things I had to do in terms of making uh, the panels. But it, in that uh, exchange, there's a young man and a young woman, a couple, going to see one of our principals, Julian Elting. And there is a back and forth, but I thought it was a very smart thing that David had done because it, it illuminated uh, what I felt about w- one of these three people that we did, uh, Julian Elting. He was a female impersonator, and I was wondering, j- just what's, what's the huge attraction of this uh, act because he was a giant star, and that's what the the uh, woman's asking the man is this all is this all Julian Elting does come on stage and pose and close?" But she starts to she starts to be find some charm in it and, and in in the clothing and in in the this uh, victorian you know uh, manner that Julian Elting presented, and the man meanwhile is kind of falling in love, he's smitten with this image of this uh, Victorian ideal. And um, up until the moment Julian Elting takes off his wig and reveals he is not in fact the the ideal Victorian uh, uh, epitome. Uh, But the the amazing thing about Julian Elting was that people went to go see him even after they knew he was a female impersonator and they still uh, found him amazing and, and very attractive.
1: And and If I could say, I have one more thing about those three pages, that they're a good example of why we chose not just the graphic form, but the dramatic form for the book, because we could have written an essay on what is it about Julian Elting, you know, why is he relevant today? And what's the you know the essence the essence of his art? We could have done that in two thousand words of text, but there in just in just two pages of word balloons and drawings, uh, we show that he he represented like the fluidity uh, of of gender and a gender confusion that 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 turned both turned men upside down and inside out. So men are watching this person Confronting a kind of sexual attraction, and then having to deal with the fact that the the knowledge that the person they had been attracted to is was really a man, which was really a very kind radical thing for Elting to ha- to have subjected his his audiences to experience, and at the same time, the woman is experiencing this uh, this firsthand this idea that. Uh, gender is is not just performative, but a construction, and that anybody could be a woman. You know, if this man could be an, a woman, and anyone can. And he's, Elting, later in the book we show that Elting produced a magazine, the Julian Elting magazine, with beauty tips for women to show that, you know, just follow these rules and follow these steps. And, you know, and you can be a beautiful woman like me. <laughs> and, it, and it's a man saying that so it, it's crazy uh and we tried to, we there we could show it in dramatic form
2: the gender politics of julian elting are um really fascinating and and bizarre that he presents himself as an ideal woman but also as a, as something that is not natural, that it's a sort of artificial creation of womanhood, kind of implying that that's true of the ideal of the Victorian woman in general, that anyone can be a woman if you also you know, spend a great deal of, of work and time and money um, kind of creating this ideal image. And yet you also point out in the book that it's an image that is already uh, in some sense historical, that this that's is- Right. Yeah, it's, it's 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 a kind of Edwardian time, but it's a kind of Victorian ideal. So, what's the yeah? What's the kind of cultural work that that's doing at that time?
1: Well, the main thing it's doing, as you just pointed out, is that his, his, what he's conveying is not an, uh, an an ideal of an image of womanhood, but an image of. The construction of womanhood, so it's really, it's really all about the construction, which is a very twenty first century idea. I mean, it's mind blowing to to think that he's innovating this thing that, that we're all living with. It's all around us today. This idea that uh, gender is fluid and the gender is is a construction, and you know that it's something you could adapt a, and a, to and adopt, adapt. By, by, you know, drawing on your impulses and following a set of codes and rules. And there he was a hundred years ago, uh, doing it and in a way that was, I think, much <clears throat> had much deeper impact than most people were able to come to terms with at the time. The writing about him at the time uh, was very superficial. So I, th- I think he had a I think he had a, a profound impact that just took a while, that had to sink in, and then you know and resurface because it was just so radical at the time. And he really was all three of them were radical each in his or her own way. And John, I thought he did a great job of really showing the multiple. There were like three or Julian Alting's, and he showed them all. We show we showed Julian Alting as a man constructing the female image and then we also show this other construction which is the construction of this the so-called real julian Alting. john do you want to speak about that a little bit the, right i the, found
2: this fascinating yeah off stage it's a completely different story
3: right which is right. another construction right yeah. <laughs> and then david and i uh we went to the Library of the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center to try to find uh, new images uh, for us. And uh, we came ac- across his uh, his magazine and also uh, images of him, you know, busy creating this He-Man offstage image, painting houses, working on cars, working on his farm, which was supposedly uh, his farm. So he was busy. He was busy making uh, Julie Elting the woman on stage, and Julian Nelting, the man off stage. Uh, he, he was a busy guy, and and creating both sexes.
1: We don't know who the real Elting was, and we can imagine, but. He's essentially two constructions of sexual extremes, sexual cliches. You know, the cliché of the Victorian woman and the cliché of the, you know, the rough and tough two-fisted man. He handed out these eight by ten glossies of him doing these uh, hyper in these hypermasculine poses. But if you look really closely at him, the, the the falseness of them becomes clear. In the in the image of him painting his house, if you, if you look at the paintbrush, there's no paint on the brush. You know. <laughs> He's up on the ladder holding a paintbrush and it came, but There's no paint on the brush, and it, I guess he really was under. He was under his hood. I don't know that he was doing anything under the hood of his car. And the farming image, which John really rendered beautifully, is just ridiculous. He's he's. I guess he thinks he's butching up for the for the image, but it, the he, the joy that he's taking in, in in playing dress up as a farmer really comes across and, and, and it's that joy in dressing up or in posing that's, that, that's what, what's he, what he's most about.
2: And there's even uh, a moment where Elting is insisting that he doesn't even particularly like dressing up as women, that it's, uh, you know, it's a great way to make a buck as if that's the only or the easiest way to make money in turn of the century
1: america is by there's a, there's a parallel to to tangway in there that by you know making by making that argument this capitalist argument uh it, it gave him license to then dress as a woman and to and to do this radical thing and he also expressed it in uh this language of like the puritan ethic of of hard work and how many how many hours it took him to squeeze himself into the corset, how much it hurt, how much he had to suffer in the course of this. He also talked about how much the, the dresses it the cost and the labor involved in making his dresses. This cost you know, $1,200, $1,272. It took three women five days to make. So he's gushing everything up and in, uh, in, in these terms of of, you know, labor, effort, and pain, uh, to just to justify to give him license, then to do this wild thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a parallel to to uh, to Tang Wei's. Maybe it's a loose parallel. Is that she had an a image of wildness or craziness or madness that get, that then gave her license to be free and libertine and uh, sexually aggressive and physically aggressive and kind of a proto-feminist ideal but in a way that the audience would accept. They would accept that because she was nuts. Oh, well you'd have to be nuts to do that. So by having this pose of madness, she had the freedom to do these things that were mad for their time. So they they both came up with, with ways, you know, to get away with doing this, this radical thing that they wanted to do. Yeah. Let's talk a bit
2: more about, uh, Ava Tanguay's act. Um, her act was, it seems like largely kind of based around performing songs, but often in elaborate, uh, costumes. Um, what exactly were people paying to go see when they went to go see, uh, a, a show where Ava Tanguay was, uh, headlining?
1: Well, I'll- the show was all about Ava Tang. Her act was all about Eva Tangway. The songs were all about Ava Tangwe and about her, the glory of Ava Tangwe, the, and the wildness of Ava Tangwe, the unpredictability of Ava Tangwe. She had 30 songs that were variations on that, that would be written for her. And then the whole act was, was uh, just a display. Of of energy of volatility and unpredictability, she would she would run and dan- hop and dance, and we say sing. Did you say sing? You no, know, it's a liberal use of the term. She perform perform songs, but in the kind of kind of with a kind of like uh, yeah. Oh, quasi-like animalistic kind of, of uh, volatility. Uh, uh, this is a case where where words really do f- fail one, and it's made, and that's another reason why we thought of working in the visual realm because John's able to show her show. If you really want to understand what Ava Tangway's act, you. Of have to see what she did john you want to pick that up
3: well yeah one of the challenges i thought of the book would be would be to try to uh capture that um uh, because she, you know she was a she was just a i think that the main attraction for ava Tangway was with people going in and say what the hell is she going to do tonight because she was just so unpredictable and so sexy and and they didn't know it, you know. And you have scenes. Uh, David gave me great scenes of her racing across the stage, kicking over easels, and doing somersaults. And uh, uh, and then we we have a we have a humorous uh, spread in the book, which kind of captures uh, what she was all about. We we have a comparison and contrast to her contemporaries, where uh, for example the contemporary singer Elsie Baker was singing I love you truly and uh meanwhile Ava Tangway singing I want someone to go wild with me and another uh popular singer Billy Murray is crooning come take a skate with me and Ava Tangway singing go as far as you like so and no one had really really seen somebody li- like her uh she was uh uh yeah people made comparisons to lady Gaga. she was she was the a, a, a unpredictable uh person really turning the victorian ideal of julian elting's image upside down
2: and eventually marrying julian elting though sort of as a onstage publicity stunt right? i don't know if they ever actually get may they announced their engagement on stage or something like
1: that isn't that right yeah you know, there wasn't a betrothal it wasn't a, a, it was an engagement very very high profile engagement. We and to to show that this is not something we were like pumping up for this for the drama of it for the book. We devoted two pages to reproducing sections from the press clippings about this event all over the country. So you know, papers in the country were cu- were talking about this for weeks. You know, the the betrothal of you know Ava Tangway the. You know, the wild woman uh, the i don't care girl and julian elting the female impersonator the actual facts of what happened on stage are lost to history so you know we we constructed that but the reaction is documented by you know dozens of newspaper clips that then we cover so we devote a fair amount, amount of space to this it's one of the way one of the times in which the characters uh, of the book literally uh, interact and come together. We didn't choose them because their lives were so closely entwined. That's not why we chose these three. We chose these three because the three important uh, figures who were transformative, each in a different way. So here's three figures who were doing three different things, that all made a difference. But there were ways in which they interacted, and that's... Chief among them, but there were other ways in which even Tang Wei and an Elting interacted. They were both in, involved in the different versions of the same theatrical, same musical comedy very early in their lives. They both played, you know, uh, they both played women in the same sh- in different productions of the same show. So Just Julian Elting did it better. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: John, then, one of the. One of the things I love about the part of the book about uh, Tanguay, John, is your illustrations of some of her uh, outlandish costumes. Could you talk a little bit about those and kind of what research went into uh, reconstructing
3: those images? Yeah, well, those were some of the images that that you can pull up uh, online. Uh, She had a a flag costume with uh, flags all around her head and her skirt and a, a chandelier outfit and uh and then leading to a sequence we have her in a, a tight bodysuit outfit with 1909 lincoln head pennies which had just come out and then she proceeds to in our few pages to to uh, enact a kind of coin operated strip tease where she's taking these pennies off one by one and flinging them at the audience and uh that got a lot of attention from the audience it also got uh Uh, some attention from uh, the police who wanted to, who thought she was being a bit, a bit too much. And we segue that aspect of her uh, career into uh, her Salome act, which took off all over Vaudeville. Uh, David uh, writes about how everybody uh, jumped on the Salome uh, bandwagon and including, uh, George uh, Walker, who was Burt Williams' partner, including his wife, and even Burt Williams did a parody of uh, Salome. But as far as Eva Eva Tangway went, I think she thought, as David suggested, that if she did something historical and and maybe with some biblical references, she could take off all those veils a little bit with a little less, maybe, uh, uh, scrutiny from the law. Right. And that is definitely part of the appeal
2: of her act is that it was, you know, considered uh, very sexy at the time.
3: Right. Outrageous, uh, right? David?
1: Yeah. Outrageously sexy. The sexual, the, the se- her sexual agency and the, the assertiveness of her sexual agency, which was one of the things that made her radical and an enormous influence to a wave of, of women performers to follow her and, um, um, uh, Mae West and, whole, and the whole generation of, of women in her wake uh, and she was fearless she one of her costumes is, as John mentioned was a was a bodysuit with pe- with pennies attached to it and she would pick each you know pull, pull each plunk, pluck pluck each one off the bodysuit and flick it in, into the audience so she was virtually naked uh, and you know and and uh, you know, there, there was burlesque already existed, and it was a racier world uh, than vaudeville, but it didn't have the, the reach. It wasn't the most popular form of entertainment in America that, uh, that vaudeville was. So, you know, to, to do this in a vaudeville stage, we're – where families were, you know, were coming, where people from all walks of life were coming, and from all classes, and even from all, you know, all races were coming, uh, made her an, an, enormously influential. Uh, and, you know, the, and the idea of, of a woman it in, in this position of sexual assertion, a woman to say, go as far as you like with me, you know, uh, I want to be as wild as an animal in the zoo, was it's it's hard to grasp how radical that is. I was I was thinking about if she existed today, if we wanted to communicate to somebody, how, you know, what was she doing? Well, you know, you'd say, well, by today's standards, uh, she'd make Cardi B look like like the singing nun. You know, she would. She would be doing. She'd probably. I'm going to be having sex on stage or, you know, we can't, we can't, we probably couldn't even imagine, you know, how far she would be pushing things if she existed today. To, to, and you need to sort of do that to fully grasp how radical her act was at the
3: time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe
2: Yeah, and then she's also pushing against a kind of idea of a specifically white expectation of women as, you know, homemakers, as domestic, as non-sexual. I mean, it's it's a very radical um, performance from that context as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, without without any question, I don't think she probably thought that that way. You know, because it was a time of less enlightenment on. Uh, on racial issues, as well as the gender issues we've been talking about so far, but, th- but it doesn't make that any less true. And uh, and didn't she have a song that was kind of about her attraction to a, a
2: black man um, yeah. in, a, in a way that's maybe, you know, I don't know if she uses the same vocabulary we'd want to use today, but that's in a, in a, in a way a progressive gesture at a time when
1: interracial marriage was illegal in uh, most states, I think. It was, and it was a hit, huge hit at the time and a hit on sheet music. Okay. Well, you, you know, you hear that and you shrug your shoulders and say, well, isn't that quaint? People were playing sheet music. But if you you really think through the impact that that had, it's quite something. The song was called my Sambo. And it was a love song to a person of mixed race. Uh, And that was clear to anyone hearing the lyrics or listening to the song or singing the song. And singing the song is the way that most people experience that song at the time. So the song is sold as sheet music. It's brought home and it's, it's nothing to play. You don't play it on a you know you're not listening to it on a on a on a record player. You're not listening to it on the radio. You're not playing it on a record player, let alone you know playing it on your, you know, on your device or streaming it. You have to sing it to experience it. So that means that the million people who bought that piece of sheet music are singing those words. So that means a million people of all races, a lot of white women, a lot of white women are internalizing that idea and expressing that idea. It's going literally through their bodies, you know, and, they're, uh, and to another group of people hearing it. And that gives it a kind of power and a kind of effect that's very different from passively taking something in, like listening to a record, listening to a song on the radio. Uh, and that's the kind of hit that my, my Sambo was called, that my Sambo was. So it's, it's, it's hard for us a hundred years later to, to, really, to really process how deep the impact of, of something like that was.
2: Uh, may, that may be an unfortunate uh, time to transition to the next topic, but let's talk about uh, Bert Williams, the third figure that you write about in the book. Um, he was a fascinating figure. He was probably one of, if not the most successful vaudeville performers. And he was an African American uh, man. Who performed in blackface, but but uh, had quite a bit of uh, ambivalence about doing so, and and uh, you know said that he would have preferred not to have performed in blackface, but that simply uh, the audience numbers were much greater when he did so. Could you talk a bit more about the kind of uh, ambiguous
1: relationship that Bert Williams had to his own act? Yeah, of course, he's a key figure in the book, and you talked about it, it being a kind of just. Dis- being discomforting to turn to the subject of Burt Williams, it always is. <laughs> it always is uh, because his story is so complex and disturbing, el- deep, elementally disturbing. He was a he was a a, a brilliant, uh, uh, bookish, and profoundly gifted uh, black man from the from the Bahamas. <clears throat> who had a gift for a performance, loved to perform, wanted to perform, and had, had to find a way to perform where he could you know, tap this passion of his, tap this skill of, of his, make an impact, have maybe make a difference, and he did make a, a huge difference, but ha- had very limited options in what he can do, what was acceptable for a black man to do. So he, he performed in blackface, you know, a black man performing in blackface. So that, why would a black man pre- perform in blackface? Well, one reason is because of very few opportunities for blacks to perform. And he pretty much had to perform in blackface. He certainly had to perform in blackface to be able to get work and to make a living. Okay. So, but after that, he was determined to deny whites exclusive, exclusive privilege of defining blackness. So he played in in blackface in part to shift the way, the the shift, the, the nature of the performance of blackness and to shift the perception of black identity among white, the members of the white audience. By humanizing uh, the characters that he portrayed, and shifting the content away from the most demeaning stereotypes, like this, I don't. I not even want to talk about them. But the the content of most minstrel performances by whites in a in performing the vile stereotype of blackness that that blackface was were. You know, horribly, horrifically, you know, monstrously degrading and demeaning. So, Williams's portrayals were softer and more humanizing. They were centered on universal emotions and centered on universal universal issues like the struggle of someone trying to make a living, the struggle of someone trying to uh, pay the rent, the struggle of trying to somebody in a card somebody in a card game. So, he. What he did was, may seem incremental, and it was incremental, but it was radically significant because he did, he did change the way the uh, black identity was represented on stage. And he changed the way that black people were perceived by the audience there's no way to underestimate the significance of his transformation. Now, this posed very big challenges for John that I'd like to I'd like to him to talk about.
3: Uh, well, let's see. And in in and in addition to to what Williams did there, uh, we also show what he did with his partner George Walker in, in forming their own production company and and hiring black. Uh, composers and lyricists and actors, and which was a a big uh, a huge jump uh, in in American entertainment, and, and to think that they could do that in that era is is really something. Um, but as far as uh, depicting Burt Williams, there's an early image uh, of Burt Williams on stage. And he has a panic attack, and the, the is he's sweating profusely. The, the, the makeup's coming down his face, and the uh, the white audience is, is is laughing even harder at it. And uh, later in his career, there's another painful uh, situation. And David and I talked about this and when David first came came up with the idea. These three uh, people in Vaudeville to do. He told me about this scene. Uh, there's uh, there was an Actors Equity strike, and Williams is a huge star at this point, a huge American star. And and the the people involved in the strike don't don't tell him there's a strike going on. He gets made up for the the follies. He goes out on stage and the theater's empty. There's nobody there. Nobody told him. And he goes home and to his library and he tries to figure out where he belongs in America as a black man and where he belongs, uh, in in American entertainment. He kind of comes to the conclusion that he doesn't really belong. And, uh, I didn't know, I, I didn't know about Elting, uh, I knew there was a movie about Abby Tangway, but I, I, I didn't remember her name. But I knew of Burt Williams, and I knew of this quote uh, by W.C. Fields, who was a good friend of Williams. And Fields said, uh, after visiting Williams and hearing about this actward, a- act, actor's equity situation and him being left out in the cold and treated like that, he said, Bert Williams was the funniest man I ever saw and the uh, saddest man i ever knew and it was part of my job and throughout his life to show to show that uh, to try to show that and i think we uh, david created a, a very well-rounded portrait of Bert williams we don't just get the Bert williams you get when you get a google image and maybe see Bert, Bert williams in blackface you you come away i think with it with a uh, a real picture of of somebody who, who really did something important in American entertainment and American society and who, who suffered the consequences for it. And And I think it's, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, please. No, no, Andy. I think it's worth noting too, that not only was blackface by black performers common around this time and around the turn of the century, but it, it remained common for decades after the time that you're talking about. I mean, I, I recently watched the film stormy weather, which is, I think 1942 and that's about this this kind of world of vaudeville, and there are black actors performing in blackface in that movie, and there were black performers in blackface in um, in, in Shuffle Along in the 1920s. So so it's you know we we may be sort of uh, embarrassed by this period in in our history now, but it was it was not considered exceptional at all at the at his time.
1: Right. Right. That's no defense. <laughs> we should be monotonely embarrassed. Right. We, should be, we should be horrified, you know, and traumatized by the by this terrible thing. And we try to one of the, one of our goals in the book was was to convey that horror. You know, when we when we see we hardly ever see Bert Williams in blackface in the book. We only only render him l- literally in blackface in a few panels, but they're indelible. They're indelible. And John did a beautiful job of of, of ki- conveying. Like the inner, ang- the anguish that uh, William, Williams must have endured by having to portray this caricature, this demeaning character of, of a slow-witted, slovenly uh, African American, when it not only did not represent him, but did not represent uh, the black world, and uh, was was. Was was a product of pure white supremacy and racism, and he had he subjected himself to it in partly, in part to defy it and in part to you know incrementally you know enact some change, but he still subjected himself to it and that was torturous to him, and he ended up essentially dr- drinking himself to death. It was it's a tragic end that we devote a significant amount of space to in the book, and in the end when he died, and we should probably mention that it was 100 years ago this month, he died. March 20, 1922, when he died, um, I don't know when this will broadcast, but we're, we're recording this in March 20, 2022, he died in 1922, uh, 15,000 people came to Harlem for his m- memorial, 15,000 people of all, of all races, and uh, he was so beloved which is mind-blowing. I don't think there's there's probably no parallel to that at the time. Um,
2: None of these figures were successes in film. Uh, Part of the reason why it works so well in these media is that we don't have good surviving footage of, of many of them. Were they simply a generation too early, or was there something about the kind of vaudeville sensibility that didn't translate well to this new medium?
1: Well, some vaudeville stars uh, you may translated very well to to film. Uh, Chaplin was a musical performer, and Keaton grew up on the vaudeville stage and act in the Three Keatons act. He, he didn't know anything other than the vaudeville stage until he went into film. But for the most part, the big, the most of the big stars of vaudeville didn't were not able to translate uh, to film. And in the case of of these three. Tang Wei was just too big for the screen. You know, she just didn't work in close up and on screen. Nor for the same reason did El Tang, the illusion that he was able to create of a, a woman on stage through lighting and distance and gestures and you know uh, and some magic, some you know, I was almost said fairy dust, magic dust, uh, didn't work. Also, he was aging out by the time that film you know, emerged. He tried to have a career as a straight actor in male roles in film, but he just wasn't that great. And Williams did make some very good films, uh, sh- short films, but in blackface and he just, by 1922, he was dead. He was mm-hmm. he died. Uh, it was a combination of all those things. And, and it, and it in the case of both Elting and Tangway, they they were both undone by the scale of their influence. I'd say more than anything, Tangway was so effect so successful as an influence on women that she wasn't able to keep up with the women who took her innovations even further. And the same thing could be said of Elting. That after after Elting came a wave of female impersonators who were doing something closer to the drag that we know today, you know, bringing parody and kitsch and camp into their performances and doing a more comic kind of kind of drag that made him seem outdated. There was a full bore craze called the pansy craze, which we give some attention to in the book that made Julian Elting suddenly very old fashioned within a period of 10 years. So it was a combination film. They couldn't adapt a film. Their their the people who they influenced took their work further and made them seem outdated. And their their time their time was up. It's extraordinary to think that someone like Bob Hope or Jack Benny or George Burns had the longevity that they did. You know, it was very very few people. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vaudeville acts, and very few were able to adapt the way that they did.
2: Yeah, that's one of the things that's interesting reading the book is that there are names that kind of pop up that are people that we know that we know from their decades of success after vaudeville commenting on these people who are, you know, were it not for your book, I wouldn't have never uh, run across most of these names. So there's this interesting sense of it being both ancient history and, you know, just before yesterday.
1: Yeah, uh, we would be more familiar with it if there if there was a film record uh you know bloodville, but there is there was is little film footage but but not much and we did we made a point to drop in names like Bob hopes on one of the bills uh Eddie Cantor plays a role in the scene. John do you want to talk about that scene with Eddie cantor and, and Williams? is this a key
3: scene in the yeah box? okay yeah um, and also we we do mention the Marx brothers in passing. Who who uh, who took their their act and and bits of the uh, identity performance like uh, Chico uh, t- took his his Italian act, and, but many of those early vaudeville acts <laughs> you wouldn't want to take anywhere mm-hmm. because they were so rough and so uh, scathing in their satire uh, about uh, race and about uh, the different uh, nationalities. But we do have a scene: uh, uh, two men walk into a bar. Uh, The big star Eddie Cantor and Burt Williams enter a bar, and uh, uh, I'm trying to find it here actually to refer to as I speak about it. Uh, And uh, Cantor on the spot, John. I'm sorry. (laughs) Cantor orders a beer, and uh, Williams. I got it. Uh, uh, Williams says he'll have a shot of gin the bartender uh the bartender says two bits for Cantor, and uh that'll be fifty dollars for for williams well williams reaches into his pocket takes out his wallet and says here's 500 i'll buy a round for everybody and uh and uh turns the situation around uh uh, puts the bartender in his place and lets him know who's a little bit more important in in the in, in america and in the world but it cost him
1: five hundred dollars to make that point. You know? <laughs> That's a trick you
2: and
3: can maybe not do every day, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it does underscore uh, a few things: uh, G- cancer's friendship uh, uh, with Williams, uh, Williams uh, having to put up with things like that every day, and uh, and 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 leading up to. And also, you know, kind of underscoring what he felt in that, in what led up to uh, our scene in uh, the Actors Equity strike, where just as big a star as he is, this is how he's treated. So, but 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 I I like those pages because David David gave the, the book is. I can say this hopefully without sounding like I'm bragging because it's talking about david. the The book is so rich uh, with with imagery, with with uh, vaudeville imagery, with New York imagery, with sheet music, with advertising from magazines, uh, with very serious uh, racial violence uh, in new york with uh, with sex with with um, as well as some funny things involving join all uh, imaginings, uh, and, and tall tales of his, his, uh, athletic prowess and, and his future plans to make a, a great palace of sorts of out in the Southwest for artists and, and, and a museum and so forth. But because of all that, I, I was, I was able to, to, use a, an awful lot of uh, approaches in my artwork because the the the, the 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 visuals are so rich that I could use kind of a cartoony approach for the humorous stuff. I could, as the work got darker, the the imagery literally got darker, the hatching and cross-hatching got darker, uh, especially, say, in a scene where George Walker, Burt Williams' partner, is running from men, you know, trying to kill him, and he, and he hides in a cellar and uh, uh and then counter to that we we have those those uh those funny comparisons of ava tangue's musical choices and her contemporaries so uh i'm not sure exactly where i started with this uh with this commentary but uh but uh along with uh, Burt Williams and Eddie Cantor in the bar, I, I David gave me an awful lot of great material to work with and, and an awful lot of styles to work within. There you go, David. How's that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, great. Thanks to you. Thanks to both of you for being on the program. I've really enjoyed talking with you about this wonderful book. I I, I would really recommend this for anybody. Who's interested in in theater history this is a chapter of the history that i think is so often you know skipped over or ignored or misrepresented so it's great to get a a real sense of what vaudeville must have been like as this exciting kind of avant-garde art form in its prime we usually see it in its decline in something like gypsy or sunset boulevard but to see it you know when it was the hottest thing on the block uh, it, it's really exciting. I think you've done a great service in, with this book. Thanks so much for being on the program, and uh, thanks so much for writing a revolution in three acts. Uh, thank thanks you. for having you,
1: Sandy. Appreciate it. Great to be here.
2: And I have one more, uh, one more final parting question, which is: Could you give us a, a, a sense of what you're working on these days, or what's what's kind of your next project uh, in the pipeline? Well.
1: I, I I have two things I just finished the song cycle as I have another life as a librettist and a lyricist uh, in music and that's done and I'm working on a book for W.W. Norton about computational creativity uh, a branch of AI it's a whole di- it's something I've never written a word about before it's a whole new field and it's it's terrifying and kind of exhilarating challenge and that's me that
2: sounds fascinating
1: yeah.
3: I've been working on panel cartoons, just gag cartoons. After such a long book, it's really refreshing to just uh, <laughs> do something that small.
2: And are, are you uh, posting those anywhere? Are those publicly available?
3: No, I, I, I'm just gathering them up, uh, saving them up to, to send in uh, to publications in the next few months.
2: Great. Well, I'll be on the lookout for them. Thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. This was really fun. Thanks. Great Thanks to again. be Great here. To
3: Thanks, Andy.
1: Great. Appreciate it.